couple of weeks ago, uh, I talked to you about God being good, the goodness of God. And I, I, I felt impressed by the Lord to not leave that message too quickly. And so there's something that God has stirred in me from Psalm 88. And I, I would like for you to turn there because my intention this morning is to go through Psalm 88 with you in 2 Corinthians 4. And then I wanted to highlight the first three verses of Hebrews 12. So I'm just letting you know you can find these places in your Bibles. Um, in the days of Paul, when he was ministering and going about in his travels, he went to Athens. And when he was in Athens, there was just a, uh, a very large gathering of philosophers and idol worshipers that were there worshiping all of these gods. It would, uh, maybe like a, a Hindu type setting. There was just gods everywhere. And then there was an altar to a god said the unknown god. I guess just in case they left one out, they didn't want to offend him. So they just said this is an altar to the unknown god. Well, Paul had been preaching and he was ministering and he was talking about Jesus Christ and God and the resurrection. And so some of these philosophers just kind of took Paul as this babbler of new things. And they were interested in him, a little bit sarcastic. The Epicureans were some of these people. And to describe the Epicureans to you, they were probably much like modern day evolutionists. They didn't believe in God. Um, they, and, and one of their primary theses of not believing in God is there, there cannot be a God because there's evil in the world. And so this, this group of people denied the existence of God and just kind of believed that everything came to be through circumstance or coincidence and life just came to be. So they were the evolutionists of old. So these philosophers and Epicureans brought Paul to Mars Hill and they said, we want to hear you. We want to hear what you have to say. And that's when Paul saw the altar to the unknown God. And when Paul saw that altar, he said, I just perceive that y'all are too superstitious in all of your devotions. You're too superstitious. And he said this, that I preach the God who is unknown to you to make him known to you. The God that made the world and all things that are in it. The Lord of heaven and earth who does not dwell in temples men have made, nor is worshipped with men's hands as though he needs anything. For it is he that gives life and breath to all things. And Paul said, this is the God that I'm preaching. I feel myself struggling, Jason. I hear my mic just still adjusting. You want me to go to something else? My voice is so much better, but it's still not quite back. But um, I'll go to this. Can you hear me? There we go. Oh, that's better. So anyway, Paul is preaching to them that the God he preaches is the God of creation. He's the God that made everything. He's not the God that is supported by men or the hands of men or the wisdom or the ingenuity of men. And Paul proudly and boldly declared this God revealed through Jesus Christ and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he confronted these people. But the Epicureans and some of the philosophers and their whole stance about life is that there's no way that there could be a God like this. There could not be a creator of this sort. 
Because if there is a God like this, then you have to explain the reason for evil. You have to explain why there is bad in the world. And that is very much the same that you hear today from atheists and agnostics and infidels that there cannot be a God. There cannot be a God because of the existence of evil. And so they brought this out in their climate and in Athens and among all of the different religions. And Paul adamantly said, stands up against this. And so the thing that they were adamant about is God either wants to eliminate bad things and cannot, or God does not want to eliminate bad things, or he neither wishes to nor can, or he wants to do both. And it is summed up in this way. If God wants to do something about evil, but he can't, then he's weak. And if God doesn't want to do something about evil and he can, then he's evil. And if God cannot do anything about evil and does not want to do anything about evil, then he's not God. And if he is God, who can do something about evil and wants to do something about evil, then why doesn't he do it? And that is basically the same question that many people are asking in our world today. And that is the question that some of us are asking in our hearts because of trials and tribulations that we have walked through. We don't understand the hand of God or why God has allowed certain things to take place in our life, or why God is not comforting or sustaining us, or why God is allowing injustice to prevail and evil men to get away with the things that they're doing. These are questions asked on a spectrum of everything in our nation, from political to entertainment. Everybody's asking questions of this nature. Jesus told a parable, and he said that in this parable, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man that sowed a field. And he prepared the field, and he sowed good seed into the field. But while the men slept, an enemy came into the field, and an enemy sowed bad seed. And when the seed began to grow, the people recognized that there were seeds that were in the field among the grain that was bad. It was tares. And they said to the master, didn't you sow good seed into the field? Why then, or how then, are these tares there among the grain? And they said to the master, shall we go and pull the tares up and separate them from the grain? And Jesus said, no, because if you pull the tares up, you will also damage the wheat. So I'm going to let them grow up together. But at the time of harvest, I will separate the grain from the wheat. And in other words, what Jesus is telling us is that what his father did was good. Everything that God made was good. In the book of Genesis at creation, when God was making things, God said, and it was good. God wanted us to know that what he did was good. And God put a man 
into that garden to tend it and to care for it. God gave the man and the woman the authority and the power to have dominion over his creation. But the man failed. And because the man failed, an enemy of God came in and sowed in that field bad seed. And God knew it. It wasn't the fault of God. It was the irresponsibility of the man and the woman that God had put into the garden to keep it and to tend it. But because they were negligent in their duties and they desired themselves to be like God and they were willing to take the side of the serpent, then the serpent with the man who chose rebellion against God sowed evil into this world. And there is evil in the world because of the rebellion of man. It is amazing to me at how bad man can be and the consequences of man's evil to his own destruction and his own ruin. And then at the end of all of that, he wants to lift his fist up to God and say, if you're God and if you're good, why don't you do something about all of the bad in the world? And if God did, we wouldn't be here today. God's restraint... God's patience is the manifestation of God's love. Because had God just immediately gone into his creation to destroy the bad, there would have never been a you. There would have never been a me. And so God was willing to allow this world to grow and populate and bring forth a harvest. But Jesus assures us there's coming a day. When God is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And God is going to do away with the bad and with the evil. But God is merciful and God is patient and God is kind. Not wanting any to perish. But he wants all men to come to life through his son Jesus Christ. And it is the mercy of God. And it is the patience of God that he has not completely put away evil yet. But he already defeated evil at the cross of Jesus. He won every victory. He won every battle. He defeated all sin. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is done. It is over. And Jesus brought in a new covenant that we are in relationship with God in that is so marvelous and so wonderful and so intimate with God. I just marvel even at our communion service today and the songs that we were singing that it's not enough for the Holy Spirit to be among his people. I want to be in you. That is so marvelous for me to consider that the living God so loves us. We're so corrupt. We're so fallen. But he loves us so much that he says it's not enough for me to be near you. I have to be in you. I want to be so close. I want to be the beating of your heart. I want to be the breath of your life. I want to be your very thoughts. And yet sometimes we as Christians go through seasons in our life that are so absolutely confusing. We don't understand what God is doing. We can't comprehend the goodness of God. We can't comprehend the mercy of God. We can't see beyond the blackness that we're in. And such is a psalm in Psalms 88. This is a very similar situation that the psalmist finds himself in. And I want to read it with you, and I'm going to just make some comments as we go through it. 
O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before you. I know there are some of you that have done that. And I know that there are some of us that are doing that now. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. In other words, this is the cry of the psalmist when they're saying this. I have cried day and night. If I don't pray, I'll die. I'm not praying legalistically. I'm praying because it's the instinct of my soul. I'm in trouble. And God, I'm asking you, please, if you will, stop preventing my prayer from getting to you. That's what it feels like. It's not what he's doing. It's just what it felt like. Let my prayer get to you. Let it through. You felt like that. You know, like your, your prayers hit the ceiling. And that's about as far as they get. They're just not getting to God. That's the way the psalmist felt. And, and then the psalmist, with such boldness, just says to God, just put your ear on my lips and listen to me. Would to God Christians could pray like this again. We pray these flowery prayers that we think God wants to hear. And God is listening to the cry of our heart anyway, and he's not listening so much to the words of our mouth that are hypocritical and deceptive in, in every way. God listens to the cry of our heart. And when you begin to be able to express that, like the psalmist did, you're going to hear the answer of God. And so he says, for my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near unto the grave. This is extreme trouble. This is extreme difficulty that the psalmist is in. He says, I'm counted with them that go down to the pit. It's not enough that I go to the grave. I'm going to the pit. I am as a man that has no strength. I have no ability to save myself. I don't know what else to do. Free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit. You did this, God. That's the way they feel. They're saying this to God. You would never say that to God. But they said this to God. You have laid me in the lowest pit. You have laid me in darkness, in the deeps. This is inexplainable. This is something that a believer's conscience has a hard time wrapping itself around. How do you explain this? This God who seems absent, this God who seems uncaring, this God who seems distant. And, and not just uncaring or distant, but the God that seems to be the one who's doing this to me. Your wrath lies hard upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. It's like a troubled sea. And just as soon as you come up out of one wave, another wave is crashing over your head. Seems to be no relief for that you will drown. You have put away my acquaintance far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up. I cannot come forth. I can't do it. I know what I should do, but I can't do it. I hear what they're telling me, but I can't do it. I cannot come forth. 
I cannot get out of this. I have no strength. I'm laying in the darkest pit. My friends are far from me. It's like everybody that knew me doesn't want to be with me because I'm so full of depression and I'm full, so full of despair. And it goes on and it says in verse 18, lover and friend, have you put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness? And that was the feeling that the psalmist was in. It's not true. It's just the way that they felt. It wasn't God in his cruelty hammering the psalmist and putting the psalmist into the grave and into the darkest pit. It wasn't God who was removing this psalmist's friends from their life and making them an abomination and even their lovers and their friends were not around them anymore. It wasn't true that God was doing this, but it is what they were experiencing in their life. And they didn't know how to overcome this. And they didn't know how to come out of this. The Bible says in verse 9, My eye mourns by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called every day to you. I have stretched out my hands to you. How many of you have done that? How many of you would say, you know what, I've... I've I've been doing this for so long. I I hear the pastor. He calls us to the altar. He calls us to praise God. And I do that. And I trust the Lord. And I sincerely pour my heart out to God. And it just seems like nothing is changing. Nothing is going on. I do this. I do what they say. I stretch out my hands. I cry to you every day. And yet nothing is changing, God. Come on. Is there not somebody in here that can experience or identify with what this psalmist is saying? Then the psalmist says this in verse 10, will you show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead rise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Are your faithfulness in destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto you have I cried, O Lord, And in the morning shall my prayer prevent you. My prayer will go before you. Every morning I'm going to pray. I can't help it. It's not legalism. It's just the instinct of my life. I know that you're God and I have nobody else to cry to. But it seems like you're the one doing all of this to me. But I still cry to you and pray to you, God. Every morning when I get up, my heart just cries out to you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? God, how long will you do this to me? I need you, God. I'm seeking you, God. I'm after you, God. I'm afflicted and I'm ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer your terrors, I'm distracted from my youth up. It just means that in this season of their life, it seems like their whole life has been bad. Seems like their whole life has been dark. It seems like their whole life has been hard and they can't remember any of the good things of life. Ever since I was a young child, life has been bad for me. That, that's what the depression is doing to them. That's what the darkness is doing to them. The despair, the, the satanic aggression against their life is causing them to believe lies about God and lies about life. But yet they have the liberty to express it to God. So openly, and God is receiving this from their life. Your fierce wrath goes over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came round about me 
daily like water. They surrounded me about together in lover and friend. Have you put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness? It's no doubt that anyone can understand that this psalmist is going through a severe, severe trial in their life. We might call this depression. We might call it despair. It's certainly satanic in its nature against this believer and against this psalmist. But one thing that that keeps coming up in the psalmist is the fact that you are the Lord. And he even opens the psalm, O God of my salvation. And beloved, I say that to you in the seasons of your trials and darkness, when you question the goodness of God, you you question the faithfulness of God. And when it looks like the present season of your life is an unending season of darkness and wrath and God is not even there. Do you have the, the, the faith? Do you have the ability to be able to say, but you still are the God of my salvation? And you say it, you declare it. And, and, and even though there are so many gods around the psalmist that are being worshipped throughout Israel, in the groves and on the high places, this psalmist said, I have cried out to no one else but you. I have not turned to any other god. I have not turned to anything else, not counselors, not a, not a church. You're the one I cry to day and night. And every morning when I wake up, my prayer is just going before me. I need you, God. But it seems like you put me away. It seems like you won't let my prayers get to you. It seems like you've shut your ears to my cry. And God, I ask you to, to open your ears and listen to me, God. And the, the, the psalmist, and I love this about the psalmist because in a way it's their faith being expressed. As they say to, as they say to God, can they praise you in the grave? In the land of forgetfulness, is anybody going to remember your goodness? Oh God, if you let me die with your promises unfulfilled. Oh God, if you let me go down to the grave, you lose a worshiper in the earth. God, if you don't come through for me, and I have told people that you are the God of my salvation, and you don't come through for me, and I die in this God, then who's going to praise you? Abraham had to have an Isaac, but he lived in 25 years of bewilderment as to whether God was going to come through and give him and his wife his very own son. Joseph had to have a famine in Egypt. He had to be sold into slavery. Oh, the dark night of that. Who can understand it, Joseph? God said that you were going to reign among your people and your brothers were going to even worship you. But look at you, Joseph. They hate you and they're selling you into slavery and they want to kill you. But it has to be. It has to be for the glory of God because the Lord is my salvation and I don't know how and I don't know when, but God is going to fulfill his word over my life and Joseph had to have a famine and he had to be a priest in Egypt and he had to be a minister in order for all of these things to come about had to be the faith of Job to be able to cry out to God though he slay me yet will I trust him I don't understand why God is doing these things to me Job even says to God, you think you could take a break and just let me swallow my spit before you give me more bad news, God? Do you think you could let me breathe? Is that too much, God, to let me breathe? From one source of calamity to another, my children died. God, but though you slay me, I will praise you. 
Because I know that you're God and I know that in the end I will see you face to face and nothing's going to take me from that. There has to be a faith that rises up. There has to be a faith that declares in the season and in the darkness, this too is going to pass and we shall see the glory of God. It has to be. If it is not, then we're not the people of faith. But God has to rise up. Will they praise you in the grave? Will they declare from the grave your faithfulness? Will they declare in the grave how you fulfilled your promises for their life? Will they declare in the grave when they're dead that you were true and you were righteous and you were faithful? If I die in this season, God, what will people say about you? And it's very similar to what Moses said to God when he was delivering Israel from Egypt and God was upset with the Israelites and he wanted to kill them and Moses said to God, he said, Lord, if you do this, what will your enemies say about you? That you were not able to bring them into their promise? So you, kill, you know that's what your enemies are going to say about you. And when you have that kind of relationship with God, where you're able to go to God and you're able to talk to God and be able to say, God, your name is upon me. Your covenant, God, I have entered into through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. I am your son. You are my father. You are my God. I am in relationship with you and people know it. God, you have to fulfill your word over my life. This cannot be the end. There has to be more to it than what I'm presently experiencing in my life. The despair is enough to take the greatest of us down to wreck us, to confuse us. We try so hard to give the impression that we're doing well, but we know inside we're falling apart and we're not doing well. But there is a God that you can talk to honestly. There is a God that you can pour your lamentation out to. You can pour your complaint out to him. Don't complain that he's a bad God but you can complain about bad things going on in your life and you can get counsel from God and consultation from the Lord. So his psalmist is saying to the Lord, you got to do something for me before I die. Because if I die like this, what will the people say who's been watching me? All I've done is talk about you. All I've done is tell people, told people that you are my salvation. If you don't come through for me, what will they say about you, God? And I ask you with all of my heart to consider that in your life. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians 4, and I want you to see a new covenant perspective. Because it's very obvious that those that were writing in the old covenant did not have full illumination. Second Corinthians chapter three tells us that they saw with a veil over their face. But when the veil is removed, you see clearly and you understand. And though the psalmist was trying to understand his life with a veil over his face and trying to understand the goodness of God and the mercy of God, the apostle Paul, without a veil on his face, sees clearly. And he's able to explain things to us. I want you to listen to me carefully. 
there is this what in life. What are you doing? What are you doing to me? What is going on? And beloved, if you don't know the answer to that what, you could faint. You could literally throw your confidence away. And if you threw your confidence away, you threw your faith away because of the dark season of your life, you would not be the first greater people than you and I have. Because they could not come to the reconciliation of this good God. But Paul did. To understand what this what is, Paul sums it up at the end of the chapter. And he says this in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, Paul would say this, I've seen the end. I went to heaven. He would, he would later tell the Corinthians that around 2 Corinthians 11 through 13. He would tell them that I went to heaven. I saw the end. I saw things that are not lawful for me to even talk about. I saw the end. And I'm coming back to men living in the present. And I'm trying to tell you that, listen, whatever it is that we go through, it is light and momentary. And it is working something for us that is so great and so heavy of a reward. It's not the darkness that's heavy. The the thing that's heavy is the glory that is going to come to us. But, But don't think for a moment that... Even one of the greatest that has ever lived among us was was free from fainting under the weight of the oppression of life. Because in the beginning of this chapter, Paul says, seeing that we have this ministry, we've received mercy, so we faint not. If it were not for God's mercy, I would have fainted. Paul is saying this, listen, I, Paul, could not go through what I went through. Because of the sheer strength of Paul. I couldn't go through what I went through just simply because of the truth of doctrine. But it was the mercy of God. It was the loving kindness of the Lord that I received. Now, beloved, you don't have to receive it. But the mercy of God is there. The loving kindness of God is there. And Paul says, because I received that, I did not faint. And don't think that his life was free from travail. He says this in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. This was real. He really was. He wasn't making this stuff up. He really suffered these types of heartaches. Chapter 11. Just read this. He says in in verse 23, 
Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons more frequent in deaths often of the Jews. Five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned once. Three times I suffered shipwreck. I was a day and a night in the ocean. In journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I'm weary, there's pain, and watchings often, and hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness. And not to even mention the weight of the care of the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's offended and I burn not? And, 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 and Paul, I, I believe Paul would say that to us in 2023 with whatever it is we could bring to the table and say, yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. And Paul would say, who's weak and I'm not weak? Come on, bring your case right here. You tell me who's been offended and I haven't been offended. I've been beat. I've been sold out. I've been betrayed. My own family wants nothing to do with me. You want to talk about offense? You want to talk about trial? You want to talk about the dark night of the soul? You want to talk about laying in an ocean for a day and a night wondering, where is your God? Paul says, come on, let's have that discussion. Don't bring your pity up here on the table. And Paul says, think I don't have any. But I can tell you this, that will destroy your faith It will rob you of your hope. It will take away from you the certain fact that this is momentary. That's what Paul said. So when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we're troubled on every side, he really was. And when he says this, and I'm back in chapter 4, he said when we're perplexed, we really are. When we're persecuted, we really are. When we're cast down, we really are cast down. The miracle of it all is that we're not destroyed. Why is this, Paul? Because in verse 11, we which live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So there's your what? You're, you're, you're bought and paid for. With the blood of Jesus Christ, you are forever loved and forever cared for. You're loved by a God who is willing to sacrifice his own son in a horrific, tragic, cruel slaughter because he loved you. And for me to think in my life that God does not care, God does not notice me, God is not aware of me. What an insult to his grace and his mercy for my life. But I know I've been there. I've done that. I've been swallowed with depression. I understand what that is. But a God who would number the hairs of my head, there's nobody else in all of the universe that cares that much about leadership. But God does. He'll number the hairs of my head. He catches my tears in a bottle. And I love what Christy said. When he catches your tears in a bottle, that means that God, he has to get this close. He has to get this close to you to catch him. And sometimes I accuse him of being so far away. 
so unkind, so calloused, never noticing what's going on with my life. And God declares to me through the prophet Isaiah, how can you say that I don't know your way? Do you not know that you're always before me? I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. How can you say that I don't care? Do you not understand the what's of life? The what's of life are what you joined me for. That Jesus would be magnified and glorified in your life. That I would allow you to be set against death itself because it can't prevail against the life of God that's in you. These are the what's of life and it's momentary and it's light because you're about to step into the weight of glory. The end is coming. And you're not going to go down to the grave without the glory of God declaring himself all over your life. Depression and despair and sorrow is not going to have the last word for you. God is going to do that. Persecution and the suffering is there. But I just read it with me again. Verse 11. We which live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Why? Why? What is happening? Well, it's because you live. And you want to live. And because you live, you're always handed over to death. For destruction, no, but to destroy death. To destroy the testimony of death. But look how death wants to win. Look how death wants to swallow everything up in your life. Look how death wants to put its veil of darkness over everything in your world. But it was never supposed to be that way. The life of Christ in you was supposed to be miraculously manifested through your life to put death down as a liar and God as the truth. It was the contest for his glory. And now we can answer Psalm 88 with the truth of the new covenant of God in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I can await my salvation and my hope that is in the Lord. So I'll go to chapter 12 of Hebrews. It's the last chapter I'm going to. And I just want to read this to you. That's the what that's happening and how do you walk through it? I'm still trying to learn myself. But in Hebrews chapter 12, he says in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him. Consider him. Not your season. Not your despair. Not your tragedy. Consider him. 
that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And this chapter comes from chapter 10, where the author of Hebrews is begging believers, please don't throw your faith away. I know it's hard right now. I know it's hard to follow Jesus right now, but please don't throw your faith away because you're living in seasons of life that you can't understand or explain. Cast off the weights, put aside the besetting sin, and consider Jesus Christ and look at him and focus upon him and concentrate upon him. Don't let the shame shame you. Don't let your struggle in the season identify you. Because we all have it. We've all been there. We've all failed. We've all struggled. We've all lost to depression. Every one of us. We've all lost to despair. But God... It's the only reason you're in church today, but God, he has not given up on you. If the devil could have had his way with you, you would be done. You would be done. Death would have won over your life. I I say this and, and think about this often in my own life. Would to God that believers had as much faith in God to be good as we did in the devil to be bad because we have a whole lot of faith in the devil to be bad. We expect him to be bad. We expect a bad day. We expect a bad week. We expect things to happen, but God is good every day. God's mercies are fresh and new every day. And if Christians would start walking around looking for the mercy of God instead of the bad of the devil, I believe there would be a demonstration of God in our city that would turn more people to Jesus Christ. It would be a joy that was unspeakable and full of glory as we saw the goodness of the Lord. But we expect the devil to be a devil. But we don't expect God to be a God when he has declared himself to be such a good God. And the testimony of those that walked with him is that he's been such a good God. And the testimony of my own life that I have to preach to myself is when it seems God's not good. I said, no, no, no. Look at my past. He's always been good. Always. Never failed me. But good in the context of eternity. Not good in the context of me as a, as a, a brat or a, a spoiled child just trying to get everything I want from God. But good in the sense that his glory comes through, that my faith is sustained. And at the end of the day, death did not win. And I've still got my faith in God. And I still can say that he's good. And it's a struggle. Fainting is real. And the battles are real. The contingents of this life are absolutely real. Unbelief in the future, the inability to see the future, the inability to hope in the hope of God 
will bring a stronghold of depression and despair into one's life that will take the fight out of them and crown Satan as the victor. Satan will say, this is it. This is your lot in life. This is what you've always known. This is what you will always know. This is it. The doctors cannot help you. Therefore, learn to deal with it and live with it and cope with it. This is your lot in life. Deal with it. Learn to live with it. Nobody likes you. Nobody wants to be around you. You're a loser and you're a failure. Learn to live with it and deal with it. And the lack of hope in the hope of God will cause me to believe that. But the hope that I have in God is that he loves me. He loves me. And he is always with me. And if I don't know why what is happening, I'll faint. God, what are you doing? I I don't know. I'll faint. I'll just shrivel up, roll up into a fetal position, and not want to go on anymore. I haven't shared this in a long time. But I fought that. I went through that. I did Psalm 88. I cried every day. I cried every night. I still do. The pain is unrelenting. We all do. But not every day, but almost multiple times a day, preachers get hit in the gut and it takes your breath away, but you can't show it. You can't show weakness and you can't show pain. And people come into your life and people walk out of your life and you got to smile and pretend it's fine. When your whole heart is crumbling inside of you and you feel like nobody likes you and nobody wants you around and you feel so incredibly awkward. I feel that way all the time, mainly because I do it to myself. It happened to me not long ago. I was in a situation like that. I felt so awkward. I felt so uncomfortable. I felt so out of place because I didn't even like myself. And I just went and I sat in my vehicle. And I I didn't cry because my heart was cold and my heart was dry. And I didn't cry. I just sat there. And I said, God, nobody likes me. I feel, and it wasn't that. I'm not asking for pity. I don't need you to come say, I like you. I felt so lonely. I felt like I was living on a planet. And I didn't know anything that was on it. And God was there. Because he said to me. 
But I love you. I love you. And I'm going to love you with the most incredible love that you've ever been able to experience in all of your life in just a few minutes, son, when I get you home with me. Don't ever lose sight of that, son. I'm coming to get you so you can be with me and look at my father. And that transfixed me. The mercy of God that came to my life. I used to be afraid to talk about shame and struggles and failure and depression. But then God delivered me from the preacher game. And I'm no different than you. And you know what I found out? You already knew that. So I was in a I was in a struggle and I did want to die. I prayed to die. Wasn't that long ago. I loved God and I loved his word. I wanted to follow him so mightily with all of my heart. I wanted to tell people how wonderful he is in his gospel. And I was attacked for it. My whole life was under attack. The whole ministry was under attack. My marriage was under attack. My family was under attack. Things were being done in secret to my children behind our back. Not to mention some of you. I didn't sleep at night. I felt really lonely. Needing God desperately. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. I prayed day and I prayed night. And I prayed all through the day. I couldn't sleep at night because my mind was racing. I was trying to figure out what is Satan doing right now? Who is Satan talking to right now? What is his strategy? What do I have to do? How do I strategize against it? What do I do? And my mind was racing, never resting, so restless, anxiety and stress and pressure and full of failure, so full of failure. So full of weakness, I was so weak. A feather could have broke me. But God was my strength. But I prayed. Oh, my God. Psalm 88, I, I lived it. I prayed. My tears were my drink. When I woke up in the morning, my bed was just wet with my tears from praying and weeping through the night. Getting up at one, two in the morning, not being able to sleep, just praying, God, let me die. God, I don't want to live anymore. Take me. I can't handle life. It's too depressing. People are too mean. I just don't want this, God. I don't want this. And I would pray and I would pray and I would pray and I would pray. And there was nothing. There was nothing from him. Nobody could comfort me. I could not come forth, Psalm 88. I could not get out of that place. 
But I could not leave him alone. I couldn't. And I remember one day, a Sunday morning, I woke up that morning somewhere around three or four in the morning, my mind racing, perplexed, full of anxiety and stress, and everybody in the world hated me. I sat in my little office off of our bedroom. By six o'clock, I needed to get ready for church and come here and pretend everything's fine. My life's falling apart. As I got up on that particular morning, after years of depression and fighting depression and battling depression and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and fasting and fasting and fasting and fasting. On that particular day, I had enough. And I told God, I've had enough. As I was walking out of my office, it's just a little room, one chair in it. I just imagined that God was sitting in the chair. And I turned around and I said to him, when are you ever going to help me? And God said to me, when are you going to let me? And I said, that is not fair. That is so cruel. I don't know how you can say that to me. I have done nothing but pray. I have done nothing but call upon you. I have not prayed to any other God. I have not asked help from any other being but you. I've prayed day and night. I don't sleep at night because I'm praying. Cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. Well, that's what I've been doing. And you've been nowhere that I can see or that I can feel. But I know that you are. I know that you are. I don't accuse you of evil. I don't accuse you of failure. But how can you say to me, God, when am I going to let you? All I've ever known is to pray. As I grew up as a little boy, I was taught to pray, pray without ceasing. That's what I'm doing and casting my cares on you. I don't understand. And God said, praise me. And I said, no. No. And the last thing he asked me was why. And I said, because I'll be happy. I can't praise you and be depressed. That was the end of our conversation, but it was the beginning of my life. I learned his presence. I learned the secret place. I learned to live in a place where my head is lifted up above my enemies and my heart rejoices. I love his church. I love people who don't love me. I care for people who don't care for me. And I like people who don't like me because it's not about me. It's about whatever comes to my life. And I can say this now. Don't think I have perfected this. 
But whatever comes, because I'll kick and scream and cry with the best of them. Devil says, boo tomorrow, and I'm going to cry. But he's going to be beat. But I've learned whatever happens to me, let it manifest the life of Christ, the grace of our Lord, and the good hope of a good God. For the Lord is good and greatly to be praised always at all times. And if he slays me, I will praise him. Job, I learned it. David, I learned it. By the grace of God, I learned it. And I want you to have it. Get close to Jesus. Because that's what Paul says. In my weakness, he's strong. His strength is perfected in my weakness. And I rejoice in my sufferings because I get to fellowship with Jesus. Rejoicing in suffering. What a paradox. But what a victory when you learn its reality. I want you to stand with me. I open up this altar to you. I invite you, please, to draw near to God. I invite you to draw near to God and just confess that he's good. To begin to praise him. To set your your eyes, your hope upon the good hope of God. To consider that this is a momentary and a light affliction. And the glory of God will be manifest in my life. For I believe that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Can you believe that? All things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Come on, say that. I believe that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I love you, Lord. And I want your purposes in my life. I can't move from this. I can't deliver myself or save myself. But I will declare that you're my God. And I will praise you as long as I have breath. I will hope in your goodness. And I will embrace that weight of glory. For I will not go down to the pit or to the grave be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord so shall I see you with my own eyes the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles regardless of what it looks like or feels like that is the words of God not the lamentation of a psalmist 
That is the word of God. My eyes are on the righteous. My ears hear your cry. Your prayers never stop at the ceiling. They reach me immediately. When you cry, I hear. When you suffer, I'm there. When you're weak, I'm strong. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will deliver you from this. Just begin to give the Lord thanks this morning.